We are uh, in the book of Revelation. This is uh, message number nine in our series. We're looking today at the letter to Laodicea, Revelation 3, 14 to 22. Um, letter to the church at Laodicea is the last of the seven letters from the risen, ascended, and glorified Jesus Christ to seven churches in uh, what was the Roman province of Asia, what is today modern-day Western Turkey, at the close of the first century A.D. The aged apostle John, uh, in exile by the order of the Roman Empire, because he wouldn't uh, give up and he wouldn't shut up, but he kept on teaching the Word of God and proclaiming the Gospel of Christ, he received a vision of Jesus Christ and a corresponding command from him, verse 11 of chapter 1, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So we're coming to the close of our study in Revelation for this calendar year. Uh, Next Sunday, we're going to do something special that will focus on Thanksgiving. And then the following Sunday, the 29th, can you believe it, we'll start our Advent series that will take us up to Christmas. Um, It's all coming very rapidly. Uh, We're going to resume our study in Revelation after the first of the year, if Jesus hasn't come yet to take us home. If he has, attendance will be bleak. So um, last Sunday, we were in the city of Philadelphia. So this week's road trip takes us another 45 miles to the southeast to the city of Laodicea. Uh, there is a road that runs between Ephesus and Laodicea that's about a hundred miles for those of you who are, um, map geeks. Uh, along with Colossae and Hierapolis, Laodicea was one of the three prominent cities there in the very fertile Lycus River Valley. The city was founded in mid third century BC as a Greek Hellenistic city by the ruler. Um, with an interesting name, Antiochus II Theos, Theos being God, so Antiochus II God. Uh, He named this city, and actually a few others, in honor of his wife, Laodicea I, who uh, also happened to be his cousin. (laughs) Uh, They had a turbulent, dysfunctional marriage, we might say, and she later murdered him by poisoning. And you can just see it in her eyes, can't you, that stony, ungrateful, threatening gaze. The city rose to great prominence, um, helped enormously by its location on the intersection of a few important trade routes, uh, also its local production of a black wool that was highly coveted because of its fine, smooth, glossy texture. Uh, Laodiceans were therefore known for their black clothing wherever they went outside of uh, the valley, they were known that must be a Laodicean, all dressed in black, not just a goth, but a Laodicean. So they're known for their black clothing, and and uh, the wool, the fabric, and the clothing that was made from that fabric became lucrative exports. Uh, archaeologists have excavated an exceptionally large agora, or a marketplace in Laodicea, um, apparently historians record that people would travel to Laodicea from all over uh, to, in effect, go to the mall. <laughs> so when you think of Laodicea, uh, think of wealth, think of affluence, 
the Agora at Laodicea was the Rodeo Drive, and the city itself was the Wall Street of Asia Minor. It became a center for banking. It attracted the investments of the rich and the famous and the powerful, among them the Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero. Large amounts of gold were also found in the region around Laodicea. So Charles Swindoll commented that money flowed through its streets, reflected in its buildings, in its businesses, and yes, even in its church. Uh, Laodicea also boasted a renowned school of medicine that that was located on the northern outskirts of the city. Uh, that school graduated the man who became the most famous ophthalmologist in the ancient world, uh, whose name was Demosthenes. But, but what really put this academy on the map was uh, its development of an ointment that was known as Phrygian powder, uh, that proved very effective in the treatment of defects of the eyes. It turned out that the main ingredient was what we know today as boric acid, and it's still used in ophthalmology today. Well, how prosperous were they really, those citizens of Laodicea? Uh, they were so prosperous that when a major earthquake just leveled the city in 60 A.D., um, We've been hearing about a lot of earthquakes in these cities, haven't we? Um, still today, a lot of earthquakes in Turkey. But when that earthquake devastated the city in 60 AD, uh, some people showed up and said, we're from the government and we're here to help. Heard that before? And uh, they brought with them some stimulus money to rebuild the city. Um, the residents, the, the citizenry of Laodicea rose up and with one voice rejected that financial support and said, we'll do it ourselves. And they did, uh, which gave another significant boost to their overall feelings of smug self-sufficiency. Laodicea had a large and thriving Jewish community and then a growing Christian community as well. Uh, I was taken with this column that was found among the ruins that uh, features a menorah topped by a cross. Isn't that interesting? Um, it seems that the Jewish and Christian communities lived together in relative peace in this city, uh, as did the rest of the very diverse population. By most measures, Laodicea was a peaceful, comfortable place to live, and its residents enjoyed significant affluence. There was only one major problem, and that is that the city planners had, when they sighted the city, had forgotten to make sure there was a water source, which just goes to prove that wealth is not a reliable indicator of wisdom, or, or to put it another way, you can be stupendous and still be stupid. It was the lack of water combined with another devastating earthquake in 600 A.D. that finally led to the city's abandonment, and a resettlement of most of the citizenry in nearby Denizli. Uh, one commentator put it this way, For all of its wealth, Laodicea could provide neither the healing power of hot water, like its neighbor Hierapolis, nor the refreshing power of cold water to be found at Colossae, but merely lukewarm water, useful only as an emetic. In other words, the water... At Laodicea, 
was disgusting. If he needed to barf, all he had to do was drink the disgusting water. As far as we know, uh, the Apostle Paul never visited the Lycus Valley, um, but Pisidian Antioch was not that far away. He was aware of the Christian communities in each of these three cities. He wrote a prominent letter to the church in Colossae, which we know as Colossians. Uh, And in that letter, he expressed a heart for the church in Laodicea. Uh, He wrote, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And I think he was referencing a struggle in prayer, so he's praying for them. How great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Later in the letter, he writes about one of his co-workers, Epaphras, uh, who was from Colossae, part of the church there. Uh, and uh, he reports that Epaphras prays and works hard on behalf of all three of the churches there in the Lycus Valley. Paul also sent greetings to the church in Laodicea and to uh, individual members of it. He directed that his letter to the Colossians uh, should also be read to the Laodicean believers. So with that introduction, let's stand together and let's read this passage aloud together. Revelation three, fourteen to 22. <clears throat> And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. You may be seated. As we enter into this today, I want to remind you that that these events in in, uh, Laodicea as well as in the other six churches It took place a long time ago, but not in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, The churches to which these letters were directed were real churches in real places made up of real people in real time, living real lives in a real place on planet Earth. Well, as in all the letters, Jesus begins with a description, uh, a self-description, as you will, if you will, and And it's true here as well. Verse 14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Uh, One of the things that I have really appreciated about these letters um, this time through Revelation is that each one of them directs our attention first to who it is that's doing the speaking. Uh, 
uh, and that is the risen and glorified Christ Jesus. But on seven different occasions, we've, we're given an opportunity to just kind of sit back and reflect on his nature, on his character, uh, in ways that have hope, hopefully opened our eyes to new discoveries of who he is and what his will for us is. On this occasion, Jesus describes himself with three titles, the first of which is the Amen. The Amen. Uh, what does this mean? Normally, uh, we only use that word when we tack it onto the end of our prayers. We may not even really uh, understand what we're saying or pause to think about what we're saying. Uh, used that way, it, it means may it be. These things that I've been praying about, Lord, may may they be. Um, but amen is, is also an Old Testament title for God. For example, in Isaiah 65, verse 16, he is twice called the God of amen. Well, why is that? Uh, it's because amen is the Hebrew word for truth. And one of the attributes of God, one of the principal attributes of God is truth. He is trustworthy. In its adverbial form, uh, it means indeed or truly, uh, in which case it serves to confirm something that's being said or something that's being done. The Hebrew word truth, amen, um, is the word that, that Jesus frequently used when he would say in his teaching, truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, or if you're a, a King James um, nut, it's verily, verily. Or what I am saying what is absolute truth. You can take it to the bank. You can build your life on it. But now Jesus not only says amen, but he says he is the amen. What does he mean? I think he means this, that his ministry, what he has done, what he's already done, what he is presently doing, and what he will continue to do, fulfills all of the promises of God. Paul wrote regarding Jesus, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. We saw last week that Jesus is the personification of authenticity. And I gave you that phrase, faithful and true, through and through. Faithful and true, through and through. There's, there's no disconnect between what he says and who he is. No disconnect between his words and his character. You think about that. When, when Christ speaks, it's always the final word. Uh, we can look to lots of religious leaders, uh, even religious books, uh, in which, uh, words have had to be retracted or modified, restated, withdrawn. Jesus has never ever had to do that. Uh, he is absolutely consistent from beginning to end. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
But secondly, Jesus adds that he is the faithful and true witness. Now that's very important all the time, and especially on this occasion, when he's about to lay some hard truth on this church about their real spiritual condition. And the only question is, would they listen? Would they heed? Third, he identifies himself as the beginning of God's creation. And I want to clarify that, lest anyone become confused. I often get questions about the word firstborn, for example, when it says of Jesus that he is the firstborn among many brothers, or he's the firstborn of all creation. Uh, Jesus is not suggesting here that he himself was created. On the contrary, Jesus is eternal God, co-equal with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, This word that's translated beginning is arche, and it means source. It means origin, or sometimes, depending on the context in which it's used, it can mean ruler. And that's consistent with what we find in the rest of Scripture. He is the source, he is the origin of creation in the sense that, that he himself is the creator. I often put it this way, that in the um, among the three persons of the triune Godhead, the, the Trinity, Jesus is the creative agent. God the Son is the creative agent. He's uh, the ruler of creation in the sense that he exercises sovereign authority over all of creation. For example, John wrote in the preamble to his gospel, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that has been made. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. See, when Jesus identified himself in this way, the church at Laodicea may have squirmed and tensed up. They may have sensed that he was about to speak the truth, to bear true witness against them. And as he outlined the real situation in Laodicea, remember that he isn't doing it as a casual observer. As in the words of the the song from a decade or so ago, God is watching us from a distance. Jesus isn't watching from a distance. Uh, He's not disinterested. He's very interested. He's entirely interested. And he has all authority. He is the sovereign Lord. He can make or break that church. He can make or break any church in an instant. In verses 15 to 17, Jesus then issues his reproof. I know your works. That's scary all by itself, isn't it? When I was a kid, we used to have this plaque that hung over our, our the table that we ate most of our meals at. And very old-fashioned plaque, but it said, Christ is the head of this house. 
the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation, and it freaked me out. (laughs) You know, it just freaked me out. So when Jesus says, I know your works, I think of that plaque. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Word is actually vomit. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. How many of you this morning are coffee drinkers? Hands up. All right. Uh, How many of you... Uh, coffee drinkers prefer cold brew or some cold espresso beverage, for example. Just just a couple of you, yeah, a few of you. What is it about you cold beverage drinkers? You, you, you're kind of hesitant. You don't want to reveal yourselves. How, how many are hot coffee lovers? Yeah, okay. Now, how many of you just love, love, love to drink it lukewarm? Huh? Got a few honest people. All right. You gotta love a coffee, cup of coffee that's been sitting for, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, right? Uh, You might drink it because chances are you spent five bucks on it, uh, but, uh, it's not optimal. It's really not optimal. Jesus says, as he said to, to each of the seven churches, I know your works. And, and to this community of believers, he adds, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, before we go any further, let me just point out that the Greek words that Jesus uses here are unmistakable. He he leaves them in no doubt about their meaning. Cold, uh, it means icy cold. Um, The word hot means boiling hot. Lukewarm means lukewarm. (laughs) And it's their lukewarmness that makes Jesus want to spew, to hurl, to blow chunks. And he says to them, in effect, dear church, you make me sick. Love Jesus. Hard to think of a less flattering assessment, especially from the only one in the universe whose opinion matters in ultimate terms. Would that you were either hot or cold. Jesus would prefer us to boil or freeze, to be hot or frigid, rather than to simmer down into a mouthful of meh. Right? So so let me ask you, why is that? Why is it that Jesus would prefer us to be cold rather than having at least some element of warmth? And I want to tell you, what I think Jesus didn't mean. So I hope you'll bear with me for just a few minutes. Here it is. I don't think that Jesus meant that he expects the mercury in our spiritual thermometers to always be maxing out at a high temperature. But that's what most of us who have been in the church for any meaningful amount of time have been taught, isn't it? That's That's the way we interpret what Jesus is teaching here. It goes like this. Spirituality, hot, good. Spirituality, cold, bad. 
Oh, and spiritually lukewarm? Very, very bad. Can I tell you that for many years, uh, as a Christian, I found this to be a spiritual defeater. It wasn't that I never experienced spiritual high temperatures. I did. It wasn't that I didn't love the Lord. It wasn't that I didn't have a passion for his word. It's just that I couldn't sustain the feelings. I'd be on a on fire for Jesus for a while. One of those evangelical buzz phrases. But then I'd get discouraged by something. Something had happened. I'd give in again to some habitual sin pattern. I'd feel the attendant guilt or in the immortal words of the righteous brothers, I'd find that I'd simply lost that love and feeling. And I'd shrink back into the hall of shame among the ranks of the lukewarm. In other words, when I define being hot in terms of my emotions how I felt from day to day, hour to hour, or let's be honest, minute by minute, I discovered that I just couldn't sustain it. And it defeated me, it discouraged me. And it finally dawned on me one fine day that Jesus might just understand that. The Bible says he's been tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. And it dawned on me also that I needed to figure out what it means that Jesus might prefer me to be either hot or cold. Was coldness, in fact, a desirable condition? Is that possible? How how could that be? So if you were also raised with that understanding, I'd like to ask you for just a moment to set that paradigm aside. And consider another way of understanding what Jesus was saying to the Laodiceans and by extension to us here in Revelation 3. You don't have to agree with me, but just give me your ears for a moment. This picture is taken from the ruins of ancient Laodicea across the Lycus River Valley. And you see that big white patch over there that looks like snow? It's actually not snow, it's cheesecake. No, I'm just kidding. It's That is Hierapolis, uh, or uh, modern-day Pamukkale. Uh, how many of you here have been to Yellowstone National Park and, and you've seen Mammoth Hot Springs? Okay. If you've seen Mammoth, you've, you'll have a small sense of what the hot springs at Hierapolis are like, although the springs at Hierapolis are much larger Uh, The mineral formations are much whiter. Uh, The water that flows from the ground there is much clearer. Uh, But a similar kind of mineral spring. I I mentioned earlier that Laodicea had a water problem. Uh, They had no water source on site, no wells, no streams, no springs. So they decided that they would make make clay pipe, and they produced all this clay pipe, and they created an aqueduct across the valley from Hierapolis uh, to Laodicea to convey hot water to their city. And the engineering was extensive. It was ingenious. The only problem was 
that by the time the hot water made its way southward, six miles uh, through the aqueduct from Hierapolis to Laodicea, it had cooled down. It was no longer hot. It was lukewarm. In the other direction was Colossae. And above Colossae were mountains capped with sparkling white snow. And in those mountains were thousands of streams flowing with icy cold, clear, clean water. And of course, in the spring, when when that snow cap melted, the, the water came down the mountains into the valley toward Colossae. The Laodiceans could transport water from there, but by the time it got back to their city. It was no longer cold. It was warmed by the sun and was lukewarm. See, apparently, if if you took that little trip over to Hierapolis and you drank the hot water on site, it, it tasted okay. The, something about the heat made the mineral taste diminish. Uh, but that same water at a lower temperature, having flowed through those nasty pipes, and maybe combined then with the formerly cold water from Colossae, just tasted like schmutz, you know? Uh, it would create nausea. It would induce vomiting, literally. It was the ancient world's version of syrup of Ipecac. So think about that with me. What is it that makes cold water preferable to lukewarm water? Usefulness. Usefulness. What is it that makes hot water preferable to lukewarm water? Usefulness. See, see, Jesus is, I think, here employing an entirely different paradigm. He's employing a local phenomenon to make a spiritual point. Cold water, in this case, does not represent cold-heartedness. Cold water is preferable to lukewarm water in Laodicea because of its usefulness. Hot water doesn't represent spiritual fervor. Hot water is preferable to lukewarm water in Laodicea because it is useful. The point I think Jesus is making in this context is that to be lukewarm is to be of no useful value in the kingdom of God. Jesus warns us to give ourselves wholeheartedly to him so as to be useful in the advancement of his kingdom. That's not to say that in other parts of the Bible, similar terms aren't used to reference spiritual temperature. They they are. But not here, I don't think. Jesus is making an entirely different point. He continues his indictment in verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So five terms kind of coalesce in my mind from this statement. Jesus identifies them, identifies them as self-satisfied, self-sufficient, self-righteous, self-directed, and ultimately self-deceived. And his reaction is disgust. There's a point in the book of the prophet Hosea, chapter 12 and verse 8, where God says of the nation of Israel, referring to them as Ephraim, Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich 
I have found wealth, listen to that, I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. And it, it's the self-satisfied, self-sufficient, self-righteous attitude of the heart that says that material and financial prosperity must equate with spiritual prosperity. I'm rich, so I must be doing something right. God is blessing me above others. And Jesus' forceful expression here toward the Laodicean Christians parallels for for both tone and intensity uh, God's words in Psalm 95.10 regarding the Israelites during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. For 40 years I loathed, not loved, loathed, that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. In verse 17, Jesus uses five descriptors to indict the Laodicean believers. He says they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. To be wretched describes life when, when everything one owns has been destroyed or plundered by war. So just watch your television screen this week and, and take in the sights in Gaza at present for a vivid graphic illustration of wretchedness. To be pitiable means to be miserable and desperate in dire straits and in need of God's mercy. To be poor means what it sounds like, but this word that that Jesus uses, describes poverty of a nature that is so abject as to bring utter destitution to the point of absolute homelessness, begging on the streets. He also says that they're blind. The term he uses is generic. It can represent blindness of a physical nature or a spiritual nature. And in the context, I think he's referring to the latter. They are bereft, he says, of spiritual vision, having eyes to see, they do not see. And fifty says they're naked, exposed, stripped down to their underwear, or worse. What's he telling them? He's dismantling their sense of security, their sense of identity, apart from him. He, he just pulls back the lid on their affluence. And instead of Laodicea being a, a center for treating defects of the eyes, he says, You yourselves are blind. And in spite of Laodicea being a hub of the wool and textile trade, he says that they themselves are naked and unclothed. The church at Laodicea must have been a wealthy church. It it must have reflected the affluence of the community. Archaeologists have unearthed a very large church facility there unlike any other that's ever been found from that era. Um, For its time, based on its sheer size, it would have been considered a megachurch, perhaps the megachurch. You remember in in chapter 2, the the Christian community at Smyrna uh, thought of itself as poor, and and Jesus says, no, you're really rich. The Laodicean Christians boasted that they were rich. And Jesus says, no, in fact, you are spiritually poverty-stricken. And maybe this is why this church eventually declined spiritually. They had 
become proud of their ministry. They'd become begun to measure things by human standards, the size of their building, the size of their parking lot, uh, the number of their programs, instead of by spiritual values. They were, Jesus says, useless in the eyes of the Lord because they were wretched and miserable, poor and blind. They were self-deceived, unable to see themselves as they really were. At verse 18, Jesus then begins to provide instruction. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, don't miss, and I'm sure you didn't, the repetition of the same themes. He counsels them to buy things from him. From him. But of course, the things he lists are things that money cannot buy. First, Gold refined by fire so that they may be truly rich. In God's word, refinement is usually associated with the fire of persecution and suffering. So he said, you want true riches? You'll find it through persecution. You'll find it through suffering for my name. Second, white garments instead of black so that they may clothe themselves and cover the shame of their nakedness. I thought this week about the, that Hans Christian Andersen story, The Emperor's New Clothes. Now the Christians in Laodicea were living with the illusion that they were clothed in splendor when in fact they were really unclothed and naked. And because of they were naked, they were vulnerable. The garments they required were not made from shiny, smooth black wool, but were white, representing the righteousness that only Christ can offer us. The salve to anoint their eyes wasn't their Phrygian powder either. Their, the eye is one of the body's most sensitive areas. So it is with spiritual vision. Only the great physician can open the eyes of our hearts. I love that song. It's probably considered old now, but open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. As he did with that man blind from birth, whose story is told in John 9, he, he might even irritate the eyes before he illuminates the eyes. You remember that story? He had never seen it his entire life, and now he could. And the religious leaders weren't having it. And so they were trying to get him to speak negatively about Jesus. And guy said, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Who, I don't know who he is. I don't know. Is he a sinner? I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Have you, have you noticed that Though the members of the Laodicean church were busy commending themselves, Jesus offers them no commendation whatsoever. 
And yet he did reassure them of one thing. And that was his love. If there's a bright spot anywhere in this letter, it's in verse 19. And Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. It's an echo of Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God will allow individuals and churches to go through times of trial so that we'll become what he wants us to become. Uh, so that we will fulfill in our lives the purpose for which he saved us in the first place. And he does it because we are his children. And he loves us. He delights in us. Imagine, even when we are resisting him, even when we are rejecting him. And those of you who are parents who have expressed or experienced that resistance or that rejection know what that means. That you never stop loving that rebellious child, that resistant child. You never stop. And the proper response then is to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means a change of mind. You've seen this word over and over again in these seven letters. It means, that first of all, a change of mind that triggers a change of behavior in which we turn away resolutely, consciously, purposefully, intentionally, all, all those words you can think of. We, we turn from sin, from all that is known, to be contrary to the will of God. Notice where Jesus is in verse 20. In the beginning, chapter 1, he's walking around in and among the churches. It's a, a picture of his presence and of his love and his attentiveness and, and even his inspection. But in Laodicea, Jesus, notice where he is. He's standing outside the organization. He's standing outside the community of believers. He's standing outside the the building, as it were, outside of this group of people that call themselves by his name, and he's knocking, knocking at the door, requesting to be welcomed in again. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You know, when I was growing up, and there's probably many of you, this was the verse, right? This was the verse that that concluded every invitation to individuals to welcome Christ into their lives, to trust in Christ. Give him your heart. Give him your life. And it certainly works that way. But don't miss that the original context here is the church. Jesus is standing outside his own church, knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. He isn't impatient. The the actual sense of that first part is, I have, uh, not that I stand, but I have taken my stand. 
I have established myself here at the door and I'm going to keep on knocking. And to the church or the individual who's willing to open the door and welcome him in again, the promise is intimate relationship. Uh, the language that's used here uh, causes the reader to believe that, that the meal that Jesus has in mind is the main meal of the day. And the table is set. And, and we sit down together with him and we enjoy a meal together. In the ancient world, that was a, an act and an expression of intimate relationship. Still today, I'm quite sure, in the Middle East. Finally, in verse 21, Jesus promises reward. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What an amazing promise. What a precious reward to sit with Christ on his throne. It's unimaginable, isn't it? I mean, we almost just kind of brush it off because because our minds can't completely fathom that that would ever be a possibility for the likes of us. To sit with Christ on His throne speaks of the incredibly high honor of sharing in Christ's exalted position. To reign with Him is to participate with Him in the administration of his kingdom. Jesus said to his disciples that night in the upper room before he went to the cross, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Imagine. And Paul gave this amazing reassurance to Timothy. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Understand this morning that that Christ is reigning now. His, His kingdom was inaugurated in his incarnation, in his earthly ministry, in his death and resurrection. But the promise here, as we've seen it revealed elsewhere in the New Testament, foresees the future establishment of a thousand-year kingdom on earth in the administration of which we will participate. And we'll learn more about that as we move forward in Revelation. But ultimately, to reign with Christ, seated with him on his throne, speaks of the greatest gift, which is simply relationship with Jesus, relationship with Christ the greatest gift that those who have trusted in Christ here and now will receive in heaven is Jesus himself to experience eternal fellowship with him. Finally, we read in verse 22 those familiar repeated words, he who has an ear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It would be so easy, it would be so natural for us to be forgetful hearers of this word of the Spirit of God to the church at Laodicea, uh, thinking that, after all, it's really for another people, uh, people of another time, another place, people in other circumstances than our own. 
And that would be a profound mistake. There, there are a few passages in Scripture that are more searching. There are a few passages that are more confrontational or more pointed than the message to this church here at Laodicea. And few messages are more needed by the church today, which in many respects sadly parallels the spiritual state of the Laodicean church. Can we say it? Are we them? The late John Stott in one of his final books wrote this. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the church of the 21st century than this. It describes vividly the respectable, nominal, rather sentimental, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. Like the Laodiceans, we appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. Well, let's review those descriptors descriptors that I mentioned earlier of the church at Laodicea and examine whether they might actually fit us. Are we self-satisfied? Expressed in Jesus' words, the words of the Laodiceans, I am rich, I have prospered, I've done this. Look at me. I've done this, or self-sufficient. I'm a rock, I'm an island. I need nothing, I need no one. I neither need nor want anyone's help, even God's. Self-righteous, self-righteous person says, I am blessed because I'm just so good. Christian says, I need the righteousness of Christ because I have none of my own. Self-directed. The old Frank Sinatra philosophy, I did it my way. I can handle my own life. Thank you very much. As opposed to the heart that says, I need the instruction of God's word and the help of the Holy Spirit. Self-deceived, not realizing that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, how do we get to a place like that? I think Paul was over the target when he wrote in Romans 1, 21 to 22, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became Fools. The writer of Proverbs said, Trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. You know, one of one of the really obvious observations in this letter that kind of stood out to me as I was preparing this message, was that Laodicea was at a distance, at a distance from what they needed most, which was good water. And an obvious solution would have been to relocate, right? To move closer to the source. 
might be a good idea for us as well to move our lives closer to the source. Jesus said to a woman that he met at Jacob's well one afternoon, everyone who drinks of this water, this water here in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Some of us here today, I'll include myself in this, need to move closer to the source. We need to draw closer. We need to intentionally, proactively do what it takes to get closer to Jesus. And it's not rocket science. We know, don't we, what that looks like. And we know what we need to do. For others of us this morning, it may be that you've never had a taste of this water that Jesus gives. And you need to take a drink. And you need to trust your life to Jesus Christ and receive from him what only he can offer. There's a lot here, isn't there? I think the application is pretty simple, though, isn't it? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of living water that springs up, that wells up to eternal life, that satisfies the thirst of our souls once and for all. And Lord, will you please direct each of us in that relocation, that constant relocation process of moving closer and closer to you, the source, that we may receive the fullness of what you are willing to offer us. And Lord, for those who have never had a taste of that water, I pray that today might be the day that they drink deeply and receive from you the gift of eternal life as they put their faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Help us, Lord, not to be forgetful hearers, to blow this off, but to be effective doers, that we would not deceive ourselves. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, the Amen. Amen.